Law 4. Always say less than necessary. Judgment. When you are trying to impress people with words, the more you say, the more common you appear and the less in control. Even if you're saying something banal, it will seem original if you make it vague, open-ended, and sphinx-like. Powerful people impress and intimidate by saying less. The more you say, the more likely you are to say something foolish. Observance of the Law In the court of Louis XIV, nobles and ministers would spend days and nights debating issues of state. They would confer, argue, make and break alliances, and argue again until finally the critical moment arrived. Two of them would be chosen to represent the different sides to Louis himself, who would decide what should be done. After these persons were chosen, everyone would argue some more. How should the issues be phrased? What would appeal to Louis? What would annoy him? At what time of day should the representatives approach him, and in what part of the Versailles Palace? What expression should they have on their faces? Finally, after all this was settled, the fateful moment would finally arrive. The two men would approach Louis, always a delicate matter, and when they finally had his ear, they would talk about the issue at hand, spelling out the options in detail. Louis would listen in silence, a most enigmatic look on his face. Finally, when each had finished his presentation and had asked for the king's opinion, he would look at them both and say, I shall see. Then he would walk away. The ministers and courtiers would never hear another word on this subject from the king. They would simply see the result, weeks later, when he would come to a decision and act. He would never bother to consult them on the matter again. Interpretation Louis XIV was a man of very few words. His most famous remark is, L'État, c'est moi, the state is me. Nothing could be more pithy, yet more eloquent. His infamous, I shall see, was one of several extremely short phrases that he would apply to all manner of requests. Louis was not always this way. As a young man, he was known for talking at length, delighting in his own eloquence. His later taciturnity was self-imposed, an act, a mask he used to keep everybody below him off balance. No one knew exactly where he stood or could predict his reactions. No one could try to deceive him by saying what they thought he wanted to hear because no one knew what he wanted to hear. As they talked on and on to the silent Louis, they revealed more and more about themselves, information he would later use against them to great effect. In the end, Louis' silence kept those around him terrified and under his thumb. It was one of the foundations of his power. As Saint-Simon wrote, no one knew as well as he how to sell his words, his smile, even his glances. Everything in him was valuable because he created differences, and his majesty was enhanced by the sparseness of his words. Keys to Power Power is, in many ways, a game of appearances, and when you say less than necessary, you inevitably appear greater 
and more powerful than you are. Your silence will make other people uncomfortable. Humans are machines of interpretation and explanation. They have to know what you are thinking. When you carefully control what you reveal, they cannot pierce your intentions or your meaning. Your short answers and silences will put them on the defensive, and they will jump in, nervously filling the silence with all kinds of comments that will reveal valuable information about them and their weaknesses. They will leave a meeting with you feeling as if they had been robbed, and they will go home and ponder your every word. This extra attention to your brief comments will only add to your power. Law 5. So much depends on reputation. Guard it with your life. Judgment. Reputation is the cornerstone of power. Through reputation alone, you can intimidate and win. Once it slips, however, you are vulnerable and will be attacked on all sides. Make your reputation unassailable. Always be alert to potential attacks and thwart them before they happen. Meanwhile, learn to destroy your enemies by opening holes in their own reputations. Then, stand aside and let public opinion hang them. Observance of the Law During China's War of the Three Kingdoms, A.D. 207-65, to the great general Chu Liang leading the forces of the Shu kingdom, dispatched his vast army to a distant camp while he rested in a small town with a handful of soldiers. Suddenly, sentinels hurried in with the alarming news that an enemy force of over 150,000 troops under Sima Yi was approaching. With only a hundred men to defend him, Chu Ga Liang's situation was hopeless. The enemy would finally capture this renowned leader. Without lamenting his fate or wasting time trying to figure out how he had been caught, Liang ordered his troops to take down their flags, throw open the city gates, and hide. He himself then took a seat on the most visible part of the city's wall, wearing a Taoist robe. He lit some incense, strummed his lute, and began to chant. Minutes later, he could see the vast enemy army approaching, an endless phalanx of soldiers. Pretending not to notice them, he continued to sing and play the lute. Soon the army stood at the town gates. At its head was Sima Yi, who instantly recognized the man on the wall. Even so, as his soldiers itched to enter the unguarded town through its open gates, Sima Yi hesitated, held them back, and studied Liang on the wall. Then he ordered an immediate and speedy retreat. Interpretation Chu Ga Liang was commonly known as the Sleeping Dragon. His exploits in the War of the Three Kingdoms were legendary. Once a man claiming to be a disaffected enemy lieutenant came to his camp offering help and information. Liang instantly recognized the situation as a setup. This man was a false deserter and should be beheaded. At the last minute, though, as the axe was about to fall, Liang stopped the execution and offered to spare the man's life 
if he agreed to become a double agent. Grateful and terrified, the man agreed and began supplying false information to the enemy. Liang won battle after battle. The sleeping dragon carefully cultivated his reputation of being the cleverest man in China, one who always had a trick up his sleeve. As powerful as any weapon, this reputation struck fear into his enemy. Sima Yi had fought against Chu Ge Liang dozens of times and knew him well. When he came on the empty city, with Liang praying on the wall, he was stunned. The Taoist robes, the chanting, the incense, this had to be a game of intimidation. The man was obviously taunting him, daring him to walk into a trap. The game was so obvious that for one moment it crossed Yi's mind that Liang actually was alone and desperate. But so great was his fear of Liang that he dared not risk finding out. Such is the power of reputation. It can put a vast army on the defensive, even force them into retreat without a single arrow being fired. Keys to Power The people around us, even our closest friends, will always, to some extent, remain mysterious and unfathomable. Their characters have secret recesses that they never reveal. The unknowableness of other people could prove disturbing if we thought about it long enough, since it would make it impossible for us really to judge other people. So, we prefer to ignore this fact and to judge people on their appearances, on what is most visible to our eyes, clothes, gestures, words, actions. In the social realm, appearances are the barometer of almost all of our judgments, and you must never be misled into believing otherwise. One false slip, one awkward or sudden change in your appearance can prove disastrous. This is the reason for the supreme importance of making and maintaining a reputation that is of your own creation. That reputation will protect you in the dangerous game of appearances, distracting the probing eyes of others from knowing what you are really like, and giving you a degree of control over how the world judges you, a powerful position to be in. Reputation has a power like magic. With one stroke of its wand, it can double your strength. It can also send people scurrying away from you. Whether the exact same deeds appear brilliant or dreadful can depend entirely on the reputation of the doer. In the beginning, you must work to establish a reputation for one outstanding quality, whether generosity or honesty or cunning. This quality sets you apart and gets other people to talk about you. You then make your reputation known to as many people as possible. Subtly, though, take care to build slowly and with a firm foundation and watch as it spreads like wildfire. Reputation is a treasure to be carefully collected and hoarded. Especially when you are first establishing it, you must protect it strictly anticipating all attacks on it. Once it is solid, do not let yourself get angry or defensive at the slanderous comments of your enemies. That reveals insecurity, not confidence, in your reputation. 
take the high road instead and never appear desperate in your self-defense. On the other hand, an attack on another man's reputation is a potent weapon, particularly when you have less power than he does. He has much more to lose in such a battle, and your own thus far small reputation gives him a small target when he tries to return your fire. But this tactic must be practiced with skill. You must not seem to engage in petty vengeance. If you do not break your enemy's reputation cleverly, you will inadvertently ruin your own. Law 6 Court attention at all cost. Judgment. Everything is judged by its appearance. What is unseen counts for nothing. Never let yourself get lost in the crowd then, or buried in oblivion. Stand out. Be conspicuous at all cost. Make yourself a magnet of attention by appearing larger, more colorful, more mysterious than the bland and timid masses. Part 1. Surround your name with the sensational and scandalous. Draw attention to yourself by creating an unforgettable, even controversial image. Court scandal. Do anything to make yourself seem larger than life and shine more brightly than those around you. Make no distinction between kinds of attention. Notoriety of any sort will bring you power. Better to be slandered and attacked than ignored. Observance of the Law P.T. Barnum started his career as an assistant to the owner of a circus, Aaron Turner, in 1836, the circus stopped in Annapolis, Maryland, for a series of performances. On the morning of opening day, Barnum took a stroll through town, wearing a new black suit. People started to follow him. Someone in the gathering crowd shouted out that he was the Reverend Ephraim K. Avery, infamous as a man acquitted of the charge of murder, but still believed guilty by most Americans. The angry mob tore off Barnum's suit and was ready to lynch him. After desperate appeals, Barnum finally convinced them to follow him to the circus where he could verify his identity. Once there, old Turner confirmed that this was all a practical joke. He himself had spread the rumor that Barnum was Avery. The crowd dispersed, but Barnum, who had nearly been killed, was not amused. He wanted to know what could have induced his boss to play such a trick. My dear Mr. Barnum, Turner replied, it was all for our good. Remember, all we need to ensure success is notoriety. And indeed, everyone in town was talking about the joke, and the circus was packed that night, and every night it stayed in Annapolis. Barnum had learned a lesson he would never forget. Barnum's first big venture of his own was for the American Museum, a collection of curiosities located in New York. One day, a beggar approached Barnum in the street. Instead of giving him money, Barnum decided to employ him. Taking him back to the museum, he gave the man five bricks and told him to make a slow circuit of several blocks. At certain points, he was to lay down a brick on the sidewalk, always keeping one brick in hand. 
On the return journey, he was to replace each brick on the street with the one he held. Meanwhile, he was to remain serious of countenance and to answer no questions. Once back at the museum, he was to enter, walk around inside, then leave through the back door and make the same bricklaying circuit again. On the man's first walk through the streets, several hundred people watched his mysterious movements. By his fourth circuit, onlookers swarmed around him, debating what he was doing. Every time he entered the museum, he was followed by people who bought tickets to keep watching him. Many of them were distracted by the museum's collections and stayed inside. By the end of the first day, the brick man had drawn over a thousand people into the museum. A few days later, the police ordered him to cease and desist from his walks. The crowds were blocking traffic. The bricklaying stopped, but thousands of New Yorkers had entered the museum, and many of those had become P.T. Barnum converts. Barnum would put a band of musicians on a balcony overlooking the street, beneath a huge banner proclaiming, Free music for the millions. What generosity, New Yorkers thought, and they flocked to hear the free concerts. But Barnum took pains to hire the worst musicians he could find, and soon after the band struck up, people would hurry to buy tickets to the museum, where they would be out of earshot of the band's noise and of the booing of the crowd. Interpretation Barnum understood the fundamental truth about attracting attention. Once people's eyes are on you, you have a special legitimacy. For Barnum, creating interest meant creating a crowd. As he later wrote, every crowd has a silver lining. At the beginning of your rise to the top, then, spend all your energy on attracting attention. Most important... The quality of the attention is irrelevant, no matter how badly his shows were reviewed or how slanderously personal were the attacks on his hoaxes. Barnum would never complain. If a newspaper critic reviled him particularly badly, in fact, he made sure to invite the man to an opening and to give him the best seat in the house. He would even write anonymous attacks on his own work, just to keep his name in the papers. From Barnum's vantage, attention, whether negative or positive, was the main ingredient of his success. The worst fate in the world for a man who yearns fame, glory, and of course power, is to be ignored. Keys to Power Burning more brightly than those around you is a skill that no one is born with. You have to learn to attract attention as surely as the lodestone attracts iron. At the start of your career, you must attach your name and reputation to a quality, an image, that sets you apart from other people. This image can be something like a characteristic style of dress or a personality quirk that amuses people and gets talked about. Once the image is established, you have an appearance, a place in the sky for your star. It is a common mistake to imagine that this peculiar appearance of yours should not be controversial, that to be attacked is somehow bad. Nothing could be further from the truth. To avoid being a flash in the pan and having your notoriety eclipsed by another, you must not discriminate between different types of attention. In the end, every kind will work in your favor. 
Once in the limelight, you must constantly renew it by adapting and varying your method of courting attention. If you don't, the public will grow tired, will take you for granted, and will move on to a newer star. The game requires constant vigilance and creativity. Part 2. Create an Air of Mystery In a world growing increasingly banal and familiar, what seems enigmatic instantly draws attention. Never make it too clear what you are doing or about to do. Do not show all your cards. An air of mystery heightens your presence. It also creates anticipation. Everyone will be watching you to see what happens next. Use mystery to beguile, seduce, even frighten. Observance of the Law Beginning in 1905, rumors started to spread throughout Paris of a young Oriental girl who danced in a private home, wrapped in veils that she gradually discarded. A local journalist who had seen her dancing reported that a woman from the Far East had come to Europe laden with perfume and jewels to introduce some of the richness of the Oriental color and life into the satiated society of European cities. Soon, everyone knew the dancer's name, Mata Hari. Early that year, in the winter, small and select audiences would gather in a salon filled with Indian statues and other relics while an orchestra played music inspired by Hindu and Javanese melodies. After keeping the audience waiting and wondering, Mata Hari would suddenly appear in a startling costume, a white cotton brassiere covered with Indian-type jewels, jeweled bands at the waist supporting a sarong that revealed as much as it concealed, bracelets up the arms. Then Matahari would dance, in a style no one in France had seen before, her whole body swaying as if she were in a trance. She told her excited and curious audience that her dances told stories from Indian mythology and Javanese folktales. Soon, the cream of Paris, ambassadors from far-off lands were competing for invitations to the salon, where it was rumored that Matahari was actually performing sacred dances in the nude. The public wanted to know more about her. She told journalists that she was actually Dutch in origin, but had grown up on the island of Java. She would also talk about time spent in India, how she had learned sacred Hindu dances there, and how Indian women can shoot straight, ride horseback, and are capable of doing logarithms and talk philosophy. By the summer of 1905, although few Parisians had actually seen Matahari dance, her name was on everyone's lips. As Matahari gave more interviews, the story of her origins kept changing, she had grown up in India. Her grandmother was the daughter of a Javanese princess. She had lived on the island of Sumatra, where she had spent her time horseback riding, gun in hand, and risking her life. No one knew anything certain about her, but journalists did not mind these changes in her biography. They compared her to an Indian goddess, a creature from the pages of Baudelaire. Whatever their imagination wanted to see in this mysterious woman from the East. In August of 1905, Matahari performed for the first time in public. 
Crowds thronging to see her on opening night caused a riot. She had now become a cult figure, spawning many imitations. One reviewer wrote, Matahari personifies all the poetry of India, its mysticism, its voluptuousness, its hypnotizing charm. Another noted, if India possesses such unexpected treasures, then all Frenchmen will emigrate to the shores of the Ganges. Soon, the fame of Matahari and her sacred Indian dances spread beyond Paris. She was invited to Berlin, Vienna, Milan. Over the next few years, she performed throughout Europe, mixed with the highest social circles, and earned an income that gave her an independence rarely enjoyed by a woman of the period. Then, near the end of World War I, she was arrested in France, tried, convicted, and finally executed as a German spy. Only during the trial did the truth come out. Matahari was not from Java or India, had not grown up in the Orient, did not have a drop of Eastern blood in her body. Her real name was Margaretha Zell, and she came from the stolid northern province of Friesland, Holland. Interpretation When Margaretha Zell arrived in Paris in 1904, she had half a franc in her pocket. She was one of the thousands of beautiful young girls who flocked to Paris every year, taking work as artists' models, nightclub dancers, or vaudeville performers at the Follies Bergère. After a few years, they would inevitably be replaced by younger girls and would often end up on the streets, turning to prostitution or else returning to the town they came from, older and chastened. Zell had higher ambitions. She had no dance experience and had never performed in the theater, but as a young girl... She had traveled with her family and had witnessed local dances in Java and Sumatra. Zell clearly understood that what was important in her act was not the dance itself, or even her face or figure, but her ability to create an air of mystery about herself. The mystery she created lay not just in her dancing, or her costumes, or the stories she would tell, or her endless lies about her origins. It lay in an atmosphere enveloping everything she did. There was nothing you could say for sure about her. She was always changing, always surprising her audience with new costumes, new dances, new stories. This air of mystery left the public always wanting to know more, always wondering about her next move. Malahari was no more beautiful than many of the other young girls who came to Paris and she was not a particularly good dancer. What separated her from the mass, what attracted and held the public's attention and made her famous and wealthy, was her mystery. People are enthralled by mystery because it invites constant interpretation. They never tire of it. The mysterious cannot be grasped, and what cannot be seized and consumed creates power. Keys to Power in a world that is ever more banal, that has had its mystery and myth squeezed out of it, we secretly crave enigmas, people or things that cannot be instantly interpreted, seized, and consumed. That is the power of the mysterious. It invites layers of interpretation, excites our imagination, seduces us into believing that it conceals something marvelous. 
The world has become so familiar and its inhabitants so predictable that what wraps itself in mystery will almost always draw the limelight to it and make us watch it. Do not imagine that to create an air of mystery, you have to be grand and awe-inspiring. Mystery that is woven into your day-to-day -day demeanor and is subtle has that much more power to fascinate and attract attention. Remember, most people are up front, can be read like an open book, take little care to control their words or image, and are hopelessly predictable. By simply holding back, keeping silent, occasionally uttering ambiguous phrases, deliberately appearing inconsistent, and acting odd in the subtlest of ways, you will emanate an aura of mystery. The people around you will then magnify that aura by constantly trying to interpret you. Mysterious people put others in a kind of inferior position, that of trying to figure them out. To degrees that they can control, they also elicit the fear surrounding anything uncertain or unknown. All great leaders know that an aura of mystery draws attention to them and creates an intimidating presence. If your social position prevents you from completely wrapping your actions in mystery, you must, at least, learn to make yourself less obvious. Every now and then, act in a way that does not mesh with other people's perception of you. This way, you keep those around you on the defensive, eliciting the kind of attention that makes you powerful. Law 7. Get others to do the work for you, but always take the credit. Judgment. Use the wisdom, knowledge, and legwork of other people to further your own cause. Not only will such assistance save you valuable time and energy, it will give you a godlike aura of efficiency and speed. In the end, your helpers will be forgotten and you will be remembered. Never do yourself what others can do for you. Transgression and Observance of the Law In 1883, a young Serbian scientist named Nikola Tesla was working for the European Division of the Continental Edison Company. He was a brilliant inventor, and Charles Batchelor, a plant manager and a personal friend of Thomas Edison, persuaded him he should seek his fortune in America, giving him a letter of introduction to Edison himself. So began a life of woe and tribulation that lasted until Tesla's death. When Tesla met Edison in New York, the famous inventor hired him on the spot. Tesla worked 18-hour days, finding ways to improve the primitive Edison dynamos. Finally, he offered to redesign them completely. To Edison, this seemed a monumental task that could last years without paying off. But he told Tesla, there's $50,000 in it for you, if you can do it. Tesla labored day and night on the project, and after only a year, he produced a greatly improved version of the dynamo, complete with automatic controls. He went to Edison to break the good news and receive his $50,000. Edison was pleased with the improvement for which he and his company would take credit. But when it came to the issue of the money, he told the young Serb, 
Tesla, you don't understand our American humor, and offered a small raise instead. Tesla's obsession was to create an alternating current system, AC, of electricity. Edison believed in the direct current system, DC, and not only refused to support Tesla's research, but later did all he could to sabotage him. Tesla turned to the great Pittsburgh magnate George Westinghouse, who had started his own electricity company. Westinghouse completely funded Tesla's research and offered him a generous royalty agreement on future profits. The AC system Tesla developed is still the standard today. But after patents were filed in his name, other scientists came forward to take credit for the invention, claiming that they had laid the groundwork for him. His name was lost in the shuffle, and the public came to associate the invention with Westinghouse himself. A year later, Westinghouse was caught in a takeover bid from J. Pierpont Morgan, who made him rescind the generous royalty contract he had signed with Tesla. Westinghouse explained to the scientist that his company would not survive if it had to pay him his full royalties. He persuaded Tesla to accept the buyout of his patents for $216,000. A large sum, no doubt, but far less than the $12 million they were worth at the time. The financiers had divested Tesla of the riches, the patents, and essentially the credit for the greatest invention of his career. The name of Guglielmo Marconi is forever linked with the invention of radio. But few know that in producing his invention, he broadcast a signal across the English Channel in 1899. Marconi made use of a patent Tesla had filed in 1897, and that his work depended on Tesla's research. Once again, Tesla received no money and no credit. Tesla invented an induction motor as well as the AC power system and he is the real father of radio. Yet, none of these discoveries bear his name. As an old man, he lived in poverty. In 1917, during his later impoverished years, Tesla was told he was to receive the Edison Medal of the American Institute of Electrical Engineers. He turned the medal down. You propose, he said, to honor me with a medal which I could pin upon my coat and strut for a vain hour before the members of your institute. You would decorate my body and continue to let starve for failure to supply recognition, my mind and its creative products, which have supplied the foundation upon which the major portion of your institute exists. Interpretation Many harbor the illusion that science dealing with facts as it does, is beyond the petty rivalries that trouble the rest of the world. Nikola Tesla was one of those. He believed science had nothing to do with politics and claimed not to care for fame and riches. As he grew older, though, this ruined his scientific work. Not associated with any particular discovery, he could attract no investors to his many ideas. While he pondered great inventions for the future, others stole the patents he had already developed and got the glory for themselves. He wanted to do everything on his own, but merely exhausted and impoverished himself in the process. Edison was Tesla's polar opposite. He wasn't actually much of a scientific thinker or inventor. 
He once said that he had no need to be a mathematician because he could always hire one. That was Edison's main method. He was really a businessman and publicist, spotting the trends and the opportunities that were out there, then hiring the best in the field to do the work for him. If he had to, he would steal from his competitors. Yet his name is much better known than Tesla's and is associated with more inventions. The lesson is twofold. First, the credit for an invention or creation is as important, if not more important, than the invention itself. You must secure the credit for yourself and keep others from stealing it away or from piggybacking on your hard work. To accomplish this, you must always be vigilant and ruthless, keeping your creation quiet until you can be sure there are no vultures circling overhead. Second, learn to take advantage of other people's work to further your own cause. Time is precious and life is short. If you try to do it all on your own, you run yourself ragged, waste energy, and burn yourself out. It is far better to conserve your forces Pounce on the work others have done and find a way to make it your own. Keys to Power This is the essence of the law. Learn to get others to do the work for you while you take the credit and you appear to be of godlike strength and power. If you think it important to do all the work yourself, you will never get far, and you will suffer the fate of the Teslas of the world. Find people with the skills and creativity you lack. Either hire them while putting your own name on top of theirs, or find a way to take their work and make it your own. Their creativity thus becomes yours, and you seem a genius to the world. Law 8. Make other people come to you. Use bait, if necessary. Judgment. When you force the other person to act, you are the one in control. It is always better to make your opponent come to you, abandoning his own plans in the process. Lure him with fabulous gains, then attack. You hold the cards. Observance of the Law At the Congress of Vienna in 1814, the major powers of Europe gathered to carve up the remains of Napoleon's fallen empire. The city was full of gaiety, and the balls were the most splendid in memory. Hovering over the proceedings, however, was the shadow of Napoleon himself. Instead of being executed or exiled far away, he had been sent to the island of Elba, not far from the coast of Italy. Even imprisoned on an island, a man as bold and creative as Napoleon Bonaparte made everyone nervous. The Austrians plotted to kill him on Elba, but decided it was too risky. Alexander I, Russia's temperamental czar, heightened the anxiety by throwing a fit during the Congress when a part of Poland was denied him. Beware, I shall loose the monster, he threatened. Everyone knew he meant Napoleon. Of all the statesmen gathered in Vienna, only Talleyrand, Napoleon's former foreign minister, seemed calm and unconcerned. It was as if he knew something the others did not. Meanwhile, on the island of Elba, Napoleon's life was a mockery of his previous glory. As Elba's king, he had been allowed to form a court, 
There was a cook, a wardrobe mistress, an official pianist, and a handful of courtiers. All this was designed to humiliate Napoleon, and it seemed to work. That winter, however, there occurred a series of events so strange and dramatic they might have been scripted in a play. Elba was surrounded by British ships, their cannons covering all possible exit points. Yet somehow, in broad daylight, on 26 February 1815, a ship with 900 men on board picked up Napoleon and put to sea. The English gave chase, but the ship got away. This almost impossible escape astonished the public throughout Europe and terrified the statesmen at the Congress of Vienna. Although it would have been safer to leave Europe, Napoleon not only chose to return to France, he raised the odds by marching on Paris with a tiny army in hopes of recapturing the throne. His strategy worked. People of all classes threw themselves at his feet. An army under Marshal Ney sped from Paris to arrest him, but when the soldiers saw their beloved former leader, they changed sides. Napoleon was declared emperor again. Volunteers swelled the ranks of his new army. Delirium swept the country. In Paris, crowds went wild. The king who had replaced Napoleon fled the country. For the next hundred days, Napoleon ruled France. Soon, however, the giddiness subsided. France was bankrupt, its resources nearly exhausted, and there was little Napoleon could do about this. At the Battle of Waterloo in June of that year, he was finally defeated for good. This time, his enemies had learned their lesson. They exiled him to the barren island of St. Helena off the west coast of Africa. There, he had no more hope of escape. Interpretation Only years later did the facts of Napoleon's dramatic escape from Elba come to light. Before he decided to attempt this bold move, visitors to his court had told him that he was more popular in France than ever and that the country would embrace him again. One of these visitors was Austria's General Kohler, who convinced Napoleon that if he escaped, the European powers, England included, would welcome him back into power. Napoleon was tipped off that the English would let him go, and indeed his escape occurred in the middle of the afternoon in full view of English spyglasses. What Napoleon did not know was that there was a man behind it all, pulling the strings, and that this man was his former minister, Talleyrand. And Talleyrand was doing all this, not to bring back the glory days, but to crush Napoleon once and for all. Considering the emperor's ambition, unsettling to Europe's stability, he had turned against him long ago. When Napoleon was exiled to Elba, Talleyrand had protested. Napoleon should be sent farther away, he argued, or Europe would never have peace. But no one listened. Instead of pushing his opinion, Talleyrand bided his time. Working quietly, he eventually won over Castlereagh and Metternich, the foreign ministers of England and Austria. Together, these men baited Napoleon into escaping. Even Kohler's visit to whisper the promise of glory in the exile's ear was part of the plan. Like a master card player, Talleyrand figured everything out in advance. He knew Napoleon would fall into the trap he had set. 
He also foresaw that Napoleon would lead the country into a war which, given France's weakened condition, could only last a few months. One diplomat in Vienna, who understood that Talleyrand was behind it all, said, He has set the house ablaze in order to save it from the plague. Keys to Power How many times has this scenario played itself out in history? An aggressive leader initiates a series of bold moves that begin by bringing him much power. Slowly, however, his power reaches a peak, and soon everything turns against him. His numerous enemies band together, trying to maintain his power. He exhausts himself going in this direction and that, and inevitably he collapses. The reason for this pattern is that the aggressive person is rarely in full control. He cannot see more than a couple of moves ahead, cannot see the consequences of this bold move or that one, because he is constantly being forced to react to the moves of his ever-growing host of enemies and to the unforeseen consequences of his own rash actions. His aggressive energy is turned against him. In the realm of power, you must ask yourself, what is the point of chasing here and there trying to solve problems and defeat my enemies if I never feel in control? Why am I always having to react to events instead of directing them? The answer is simple. Your idea of power is wrong. You have mistaken aggressive action for effective action. And most often, the most effective action is to stay back, keep calm, and let others be frustrated by the traps you lay for them playing for long-term power rather than quick victory. Remember, the essence of power is the ability to keep the initiative, to get others to react to your moves, to keep your opponent and those around you on the defensive. When you make other people come to you, you suddenly become the one controlling the situation, and the one who has control has power. Two things must happen to place you in this position. You yourself must learn to master your emotions and never to be influenced by anger. Meanwhile, however, you must play on people's natural tendency to react angrily when pushed and baited. In the long run, the ability to make others come to you is a weapon far more powerful than any tool of aggression. Manipulation is a dangerous game. Once someone suspects he is being manipulated, it becomes harder and harder to control him. But when you make your opponent come to you, you create the illusion that he is controlling the situation. He does not feel the strings that pull him, just as Napoleon imagined that he himself was the master of his daring escape and return to power. Law 9 Win through your actions, never through argument. Judgment. Any momentary triumph you think you have gained through argument is really a pyrrhic victory. The resentment and ill will you stir up is stronger and lasts longer than any momentary change of opinion. It is much more powerful to get others to agree with you through your actions without saying a word. Demonstrate. Do not explicate. Observance of the Law In 1502, in Florence, Italy, 
An enormous block of marble stood in the works department of the Church of Santa Maria del Fiore. It had once been a magnificent piece of raw stone, but an unskilled sculptor had mistakenly bored a hole through it where there should have been a figure's legs, generally mutilating it. Piero Sararini, Florence's mayor, had contemplated trying to save the block by commissioning Leonardo da Vinci to work on it, or some other master, but had given up, since everyone agreed that the stone had been ruined. So, despite the money that had been wasted on it, it gathered dust in the dark halls of the church. This was where things stood until some Florentine friends of the great Michelangelo decided to write to the artist then living in Rome. He alone, they said, could do something with the marble, which was still magnificent raw material. Michelangelo traveled to Florence, examined the stone, and came to the conclusion that he could, in fact, carve a fine figure from it by adapting the pose to the way the rock had been mutilated. Sutterini argued that this was a waste of time. Nobody could salvage such a disaster, but he finally agreed to let the artist work on it. Michelangelo decided he would depict a young David, sling in hand. Weeks later, as Michelangelo was putting the final touches on the statue, Sutterini entered the studio. Fancying himself a bit of a connoisseur, he studied the huge work, and told Michelangelo that while he thought it was magnificent, the nose, he judged, was too big. Michelangelo realized that Sotterini was standing in a place right under the giant figure and did not have the proper perspective. Without a word, he gestured for Sotterini to follow him up the scaffolding. Reaching the nose, he picked up his chisel as well as a bit of marble dust that lay on the planks. With Sotterini just a few feet below him on the scaffolding, Michelangelo started to tap lightly with the chisel, letting the bits of dust he had gathered in his hand to fall little by little. He actually did nothing to change the nose, but gave every appearance of working on it. After a few minutes of the charade, he stood aside. Look at it now. I like it better, replied Sotterini. You've made it come alive. Interpretation Michelangelo knew that by changing the shape of the nose, he might ruin the entire sculpture. Yet Sotterini was a patron who prided himself on his aesthetic judgment. To offend such a man by arguing would not only gain Michelangelo nothing, it would put future commissions in jeopardy. Michelangelo was too clever to argue. His solution was to change Sotterini's perspective, literally bringing him closer to the nose, without making him realize that this was the cause of his misperception. Fortunately for posterity, Michelangelo found a way to keep the perfection of the statue intact, while at the same time making Sotterini believe he had improved it. Such is the double power of winning through actions rather than argument. No one is offended. And your point is proven. Keys to Power In the realm of power, you must learn to judge your moves by their long-term effects on other people. The problem in trying to prove a point or gain a victory through argument is that, in the end, you can never be certain how it affects the people you're arguing with. They may appear to agree with you politely, but inside they may resent you. 
Or perhaps something you said inadvertently even offended them. Words have that insidious ability to be interpreted according to the other person's mood and insecurities. Even the best argument has no solid foundation, for we have all come to distrust the slippery nature of words. And days after agreeing with someone, we often revert to our old opinion out of sheer habit. Understand this. Words are a dime a dozen. Everyone knows that in the heat of an argument, we will all say anything to support our cause. We will quote the Bible, refer to unverifiable statistics. Who can be persuaded by bags of air like that? Action and demonstration are much more powerful and meaningful. They are there before our eyes for us to see. Yes, now the statue's nose does look just right. There are no offensive words, no possibility of misinterpretation. No one can argue with a demonstrated proof. As Balthazar Gracian remarks, the truth is generally seen, rarely heard. Law 10. Infection. Avoid the unhappy and unlucky. Judgment. You can die from someone else's misery. Emotional states are as infectious as diseases. You may feel you are helping the drowning man, but you are only precipitating your own disaster. The unfortunate sometimes draw misfortune on themselves. They will also draw it on you. Associate with the happy and fortunate instead. Transgression of the Law Born in Limerick, Ireland in 1818, Marie Gilbert came to Paris in the 1840s to make her fortune as a dancer and performer. Taking the name Lola Montez, her mother was of distant Spanish descent. She claimed to be a flamenco dancer from Spain. By 1845, her career was languishing, and to survive, she became a courtesan, quickly one of the more successful in Paris. Only one man could salvage Lola's dancing career, Alexandre de Jarrier, owner of the newspaper with the largest circulation in France, and also the newspaper's drama critic. She decided to woo and conquer him. Investigating his habits, she discovered that he went riding every morning. An excellent horsewoman herself, she rode out one morning and accidentally ran into him, Soon they were riding together every day. A few weeks later, Lola moved into his apartment. For a while, the two were happy together. With Dujarier's help, Lola began to revive her dancing career. Despite the risk to his social standing, Dujarier told friends he would marry her in the spring. Lola had never told him that she had eloped at age 19 with an Englishman and was still legally married. Although Dujarier was deeply in love, his life started to slide downhill. His fortunes in business changed, and influential friends began to avoid him. One night, Dujarier was invited to a party, attended by some of the wealthiest young men in Paris. Lola wanted to go too, but he would not allow it. They had their first quarrel, and Dujarier attended the party by himself. There, hopelessly drunk, he insulted an influential drama critic, Jean-Baptiste Rosemont de Beauvillon, perhaps because of something the critic had said about Lola. 
The following morning, Beauvallon challenged him to a duel. Beauvallon was one of the best pistol shots in France. Dujarrier tried to apologize, but the duel took place, and he was shot and killed. Thus ended the life of one of the most promising young men of Paris society. Devastated, Lola left Paris. In 1846, Lola Montez found herself in Munich, where she decided to woo and conquer King Ludwig of Bavaria. The best way to Ludwig, she discovered, was through his aide-de-camp, Count Otto von Reckberg, a man with a fondness for pretty girls. One day, when the Count was breakfasting at an outdoor café, Lola rode by on her horse, was accidentally thrown from the saddle, and landed at Reckberg's feet. The Count rushed to help her and was enchanted. He promised to introduce her to Ludwig. Reckberg arranged an audience with the king for Lola, but when she arrived in the anteroom, she could hear the king saying he was too busy to meet a favor-seeking stranger. Lola pushed aside the sentries and entered his room anyway. In the process, the front of her dress somehow got torn, perhaps by her perhaps by one of the sentries, and to the astonishment of all, most especially the king, her bare breasts were brazenly exposed. Lola was granted her audience with Ludwig. Fifty-five hours later, she made her debut on the Bavarian stage. The reviews were terrible, but that did not stop Ludwig from arranging more performances. Ludwig was, in his own words, bewitched by Lola. He started to appear in public with her on his arm, and then he bought and furnished an apartment for her on one of Munich's most fashionable boulevards. Although he had been known as a miser and was not given to flights of fancy, he started to shower Lola with gifts and to write poetry for her. Now his favored mistress, she catapulted to fame and fortune overnight. Lola began to lose her sense of proportion, one day, when she was out riding, an elderly man rode ahead of her, a bit too slowly for her liking. Unable to pass him, she began to slash him with her riding crop. On another occasion, she took her dog, unleashed, out for a stroll. The dog attacked a passerby, but instead of helping the man get the dog away, she whipped him with the leash. Incidents like this infuriated the stolid citizens of Bavaria, but Ludwig stood by Lola and even had her naturalized as a Bavarian citizen. The king's entourage tried to wake him to the dangers of the affair, but those who criticized Lola were summarily fired. While Bavarians who had loved their king now outwardly disrespected him, Lola was made a countess, had a new palace built for herself, and began to dabble in politics, advising Ludwig on policy. She was the most powerful force in the kingdom. Her influence in the king's cabinet continued to grow, and she treated the other ministers with disdain. As a result, riots broke out throughout the realm. A once peaceful land was virtually in the grip of civil war, and students everywhere were chanting, Raus mit Lola! By February of 1848, Ludwig was finally unable to withstand the pressure. With great sadness, he ordered Lola to leave Bavaria immediately. She left, but not until she was paid off. For the next five weeks, the Bavarians' wrath was turned against their formerly beloved king. 
in March of that year, he was forced to abdicate. Lola Montez moved to England. More than anything, she needed respectability, and despite being married, she still had not arranged a divorce from the Englishman she had wed years before. She set her sights on George Trafford Heald, a promising young army officer who was the son of an influential barrister. Although he was ten years younger than Lola and could have chosen a wife among the prettiest and wealthiest young girls of English society, Heald fell under her spell. They were married in 1849. Soon, arrested on the charge of bigamy, she skipped bail, and she and Heald made their way to Spain. They quarreled horribly, and on one occasion, Lola slashed him with a knife. Finally, she drove him away. Returning to England, he found he had lost his position in the army. Ostracized from English society, he moved to Portugal, where he lived in poverty. After a few months, his short life ended in a boating accident. A few years later, the man who published Lola Montez's autobiography went bankrupt. In 1853, Lola moved to California, where she met and married a man named Pat Hull. Their relationship was as stormy as all the others, and she left Hull for another man. He took to drink and fell into a deep depression that lasted until he died four years later, still a relatively young man. At the age of 41, Lola gave away her clothes and finery and turned to God. She toured America lecturing on religious topics, dressed in white and wearing a halo-like white headgear. She died two years later, in 1861. Interpretation Lola Montez attracted men with her wiles, but her power over them went beyond the sexual. It was through the force of her character that she kept her lovers enthralled. Men were sucked into the maelstrom she churned up around her. They felt confused, upset, but the strength of the emotions she stirred also made them feel more alive. As is often the case with infection, the problems would only arise over time. Lola's inherent instability would begin to get under her lover's skin. They would find themselves drawn into her problems, but their emotional attachment to her would make them want to help her. This was the crucial point of the disease, for Lola Montez could not be helped. Her problems were too deep. Once the lover identified with them, he was lost. He would find himself embroiled in quarrels. The infection would spread to his family and friends, or, in the case of Ludwig, to an entire nation. You could spend a lifetime studying the pathology of infecting characters, but don't waste your time. Just learn the lesson. When you suspect you are in the presence of an infector, don't argue, don't try to help, don't pass the person on to your friends, or you will become enmeshed. Flee the infector's presence or suffer the consequences. Keys to Power Those misfortunates among us who have been brought down by circumstances beyond their control deserve all the help and sympathy we can give them. But there are others who are not born to misfortune or unhappiness, but who draw it upon themselves by their destructive actions and unsettling effect on others. It would be a great thing if we could raise them up, change their patterns, 
but more often than not, it is their patterns that end up getting inside and changing us. The incurably unhappy and unstable have a particularly strong infecting power because their characters and emotions are so intense. They often present themselves as victims, making it difficult, at first, to see their miseries as self-inflicted. Before you realize the real nature of their problems, you have been infected by them. Understand this. In the game of power, the people you associate with are critical. The risk of associating with infectors is that you will waste valuable time and energy trying to free yourself. Through a kind of guilt by association, you will also suffer in the eyes of others. Never underestimate the dangers of infection. Law 11. Learn to keep people dependent on you. Judgment. To maintain your independence, you must always be needed and wanted. The more you are relied on, the more freedom you have. Make people depend on you for their happiness and prosperity, and you have nothing to fear. Never teach them enough so that they can do without you. Observance of the Law When Otto von Bismarck became a deputy in the Prussian parliament in 1847, he was 32 years old and without an ally or friend. Looking around him, he decided that the side to ally himself with was not the parliament's liberals or conservatives, not any particular minister, and certainly not the people. It was with the king, Frederick William IV. This was an odd choice, to say the least, for Frederick was at a low point of his power. A weak, indecisive man, he consistently gave in to the liberals in Parliament. In fact, he was spineless, and stood for much that Bismarck disliked personally and politically. Yet, Bismarck courted Frederick night and day. When other deputies attacked the king for his many inept moves, only Bismarck stood by him. Finally, it all paid off. In 1851, Bismarck was made a minister in the king's cabinet. Now he went to work. Time and again, he forced the king's hand, getting him to build up the military, to stand up to the liberals, to do exactly as Bismarck wished. He worked on Frederick's insecurity about his manliness, challenging him to be firm and to rule with pride. And he slowly restored the king's powers until the monarchy was once again the most powerful force in Prussia. When Frederick died in 1861, his brother William assumed the throne. William disliked Bismarck intensely and had no intention of keeping him around. But he also inherited the same situation his brother had, enemies galore who wanted to nibble his power away. He actually considered abdicating, feeling he lacked the strength to deal with this dangerous and precarious position. But Bismarck insinuated himself once again. He stood by the new king, gave him strength, and urged him into firm and decisive action. The king grew dependent on Bismarck's strong-arm tactics to keep his enemies at bay. And despite his antipathy toward the man, he soon made him his prime minister. The two quarreled often over policy. Bismarck was much more conservative, but the king understood his own dependency. Whenever the prime minister threatened to resign, the king gave in to him, 
time after time. It was, in fact, Bismarck who set state policy. Years later, Bismarck's actions as Prussia's prime minister led the various German states to be united into one country. Now, Bismarck finagled the king into letting himself be crowned Emperor of Germany. Yet it was really Bismarck who had reached the heights of power. As right-hand man to the emperor and as imperial chancellor and knighted prince, he pulled all the levers. Interpretation Most young and ambitious politicians looking out on the political landscape of 1840s Germany would have tried to build a power base among those with the most power. Bismarck saw different. Joining forces with the powerful can be foolish. They will swallow you up. No one will come to depend on you if they are already strong. If you are ambitious, it is much wiser to seek out weak rulers or masters with whom you can create a relationship of dependency. You become their strength, their intelligence, their spine. What power you hold. If they got rid of you, the whole edifice would collapse. Necessity rules the world. People rarely act unless compelled to. If you create no need for yourself, then you will be done away with at first opportunity. If, on the other hand, you understand the laws of power and make others depend on you for their welfare, if you can counteract their weakness with your own iron and blood, in Bismarck's phrase, then you will survive your masters as Bismarck did. You will have all the benefits of power without the thorns that come from being a master. Keys to Power the ultimate power is the power to get people to do as you wish. When you can do this without having to force people or hurt them, when they willingly grant you what you desire, then your power is untouchable. The best way to achieve this position is to create a relationship of dependence. The master requires your services. He is weak or unable to function without you. You have enmeshed yourself in his work so deeply that doing away with you would bring him great difficulty, or at least would mean valuable time lost in training another to replace you. Once such a relationship is established, you have the upper hand, the leverage to make the master do as you wish. It is the classic case of the man behind the throne, the servant of the king who actually controls the king. Do not be one of the many who mistakenly believe that the ultimate form of power is independence. Power involves a relationship between people. You will always need others as allies, pawns, or even as weak masters who serve as your front. The completely independent man would live in a cabin in the woods. He would have the freedom to come and go as he pleased, but he would have no power. The best you can hope for is that others will grow so dependent on you that you enjoy a kind of reverse independence. Their need for you frees you. One last warning. Do not imagine that your master's dependence on you will make him love you. In fact, he may resent and fear you. But as Machiavelli said, it is better to be feared than loved. Fear you can control. Love? Never. Depending on an emotion as subtle and changeable as love or friendship will only make you insecure. Better to have others depend on you out of fear of the consequences of losing you 
than out of love of your company.